All right. So if you've got your Bible open, we are in Ephesians chapter 1. And before we get started, we're going to do our memory verse challenge for, not the challenge, but our memory verse for this month. And it is Ephesians 1, 18. I need to look at the screen because I have a different version. We're reading from the NIV, if everybody wants to read with me. It says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. So as Brian said, my name's Adam Weiner, and I'm a member at Clearwater. If you watch the uh, catechism video, I've been doing the, the catechisms every Tuesday on Facebook. So if you go to Clearwater's Facebook page, at 7 o'clock every Tuesday, you'll see my face and my house talking through cate uh, catechism. Catechism is basic education questions that helps us form our heart and mind around the gospel. So there's a simple question every week. Who is Jesus? Why did Jesus have to be fully human? Why was Jesus fully divine? And it gives us a very simple answer. So it helps us to frame in a very simple way some basic questions about Christian theology, about who Jesus is, what the work of the Holy Spirit is, what the church is, uh, very basic things. So if you want to check that out, it's on Tuesday at 7 o'clock. So today we're looking at Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. And let's, let's read the whole passage Starting in verse 15, my Bible says, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you might know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his, high, at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So this is a large passage. We're not going to be able to touch on everything this morning. But what we're seeing in this text as Paul is moving from his opening uh, poem, his opening kind of uh, reflection on the spiritual gifts that we have in Christ, Paul is moved to pray for the people at the church in Ephesus. He says, for this reason, I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, that, ex that I've heard of your faith and the love that you have for the church. Paul has been very removed from the church in Ephesus, right? He moved from city to city as the uh, Spirit led him in his ministry, and so it's been five to seven years since he's been in Ephesus, but he has a great deal of care for, for the people there. And he's hearing reports from people uh, that would bring messages that this is what's going on in Ephesus. This is what's going on in Colossae. This is what's going on in Corinth. And here he says he's heard a very good report. He's heard that they are a people of faith in the Lord Jesus and they are a people of love. And this spurns Paul's heart to prayer. It spurns him to pray for the people. And that, that's what this text is. This text is a prayer that Paul prays for the church 
in Ephesians. And what we're going to see is we're going to see a, a Trinitarian prayer, a prayer that encompasses God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's a prayer of thanksgiving and love that provides insight for us in our life and how we pray in the church. So there's three things I think we're going to focus, I know we're going to focus on today. Number one is the focus of Paul's prayer. What's the focus that he asks for? What's the big idea that Paul wants the people of Ephesus to get? So the focus of Paul's prayer, the three goals that Paul prays for. He prays specifically for three things. We read them in our, in our memory verse, Ephesians 1.18. And thirdly, we'll talk about the power of Paul's prayer. So we'll talk about the focus of his prayer, the three goals, and the power of his prayer. So number one, the focus of the prayer. The focus of the prayer is seen in verse 16. He says, I've heard of the faith and the love that you have toward all the saints, and I do not cease giving thanks of you while making mention of you in my prayers. Verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, this is very religious language, right? A spirit of revelation, a spirit of, of knowledge and wisdom. Now, and, and there is some difference, right, in, in some of the translations. Your Bible in verse 17, it says, uh, may give you a spirit of wisdom. Now, some Bibles might capitalize the S in spirit. They might say the spirit or a spirit, right? So that's, that's some, just some uh, difference in translation from, from the Greek. From my, my mind, I think it's referencing the Holy Spirit, giving you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. So what is Paul praying for then? What is he praying for? He's praying that the Holy Spirit would give us wisdom and revelation to know God better. That's the focus of this prayer. He's asking that the Holy Spirit would give the church a better understanding, a better uh, revelation and wisdom into knowing who God is. Paul is praying that the Holy Spirit would teach us, the church, more about who God is. What does this mean? It means that God is knowable, right? It means that you and I can know God. That's amazing that God has revealed himself clearly. We believe that in, in, in the church, right? That God has revealed himself to mankind. He's revealed himself, right? The Bible says in the in creation, right? He's revealed himself through the things that he has made. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God, right? He's revealed himself in Jesus Christ. God has revealed himself in creation. He's revealed himself in Jesus Christ. He's revealed himself, we believe, in the scriptures, that God speaks through the scriptures. So there are myriad ways that you and I can know who God is. And Paul prays that the church not just unbelievers, but that the church would know him better. That's the focus of this prayer, that Paul says, I pray, not that you would do this in your life or do that or, or whatever, we'll talk about that later, but he prays that they would know God better. This means that God is knowable, that we can know him, and that we should never stop. There's never a point in our life where we say, I've known enough. Right? Never a point where I, there's nothing more that I need to know about God. And I pray that for us, that God would give you a passion for his word, that he'd give you a passion for knowing more and more about who God is. You can ask God for that if you don't have it. You can ask God for that. 
You could say, God, give me a passion to know your scriptures. Give me a passion to know you more. And God will give you that passion, I believe. He did it for me. He did it for me when I was very young. I was very young. The people I wanted to be when I grew up were men who, who loved the Lord and who loved his scriptures. And for some reason, in a very young Adam, that was the person that I wanted to be like when I grew up. So I prayed, God, help me to know the scriptures like these men who imitated you. Help me to imitate them. And God gave me that passion to know the scriptures. That's what I went on and studied. But still, we're just scratching the surface, of course, in our life. Right? We can pursue God through all of our life, and we're still scratching the surface. But if we ask God to reveal himself to us, he's going to do it. He's going to do that because that's the Holy Spirit's job. Right? It's the Holy Spirit's job to teach us who he is. He, the Holy Spirit indwells among us. It's Pentecost Sunday. Right? The Holy Spirit lives in our life. Ephesians 1 says that the uh, Holy Spirit is a, a seal of our inheritance and that God is going to use the Holy Spirit to teach us more about himself. So God wants us to know him so much that he will help us know him. Right? He's going to give us the Holy Spirit to help us know him better. Knowing God is foundational for our pursuit of holiness in life. John Stott, the English commentator, said, growth in knowledge is indispensable from growth in holiness. If you want to grow in sanctification, grow in holiness in your life, pursue knowing the Lord. Pursue knowing the Lord to grow in holiness in your life. So how can we know God, right? How can we know him better if he's revealed himself to us, if he's shown himself to us through creation, through, through Jesus, through, through the scriptures, how can we know him better? Number one, we have to do what Paul does. We can pray and ask God for the Holy Spirit to teach us, to give us wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him that we can know him better. Number two, we have to read the scriptures, right? If you, if you want to know what the Holy Spirit's voice sounds like, read the scriptures. If you say, I don't hear the voice of God in my life, read the scriptures. If you want to know what God sounds like, read the scriptures, if you know what the scriptures say, if you know the gospels, if you know what the Bible says, you're going to hear God's voice better. You're going to hear his voice better. That means you have to read it. You have to study it. You have to chew on it. One of my favorite ideas for understanding the scriptures comes from Psalm 1. It's my favorite psalm. It's a, a contrast of a person who pursues uh, wickedness, right? Uh, well, how does it start? The, the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the path of sinners, sit, or the seat, sit in the seat of scoffers. Verse, Psalm 1, verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now in the Old Testament, the word meditate is literally the word to chew, is that the person would chew on the law of the Lord day and night. The idea in my mind always has been of a cow chewing its food, right? Chewing again and again and again and again. Blessed is the one who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. Chew on the word of God day and night. That's why Brian and Mike were saying on Thursday to study the book of Ephesians. It's a short little letter. It is, there, there isn't a, 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 it's not very long. It's not going to take you more than 30 minutes to read. But pray and, and say, God, please help me to understand what you're saying through this letter. And he'll bring some verses to your mind that you can chew on and think about and hide in your heart every day. 
So we can pray and ask God for the Holy Spirit to give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation to know him better. But we need to read the Bible to study it. We have to do the work. Right? The Holy Spirit is ready to teach us more about himself. Now let's keep reading and say, what is the purpose of this knowledge? What is the purpose of the Spirit that would give us a better knowledge of him? Verse 18 says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling. Let me just focus on, on that phrase. What are the eyes of your heart may be enlightened? Now the eyes of your heart is a unique phrase in all of Greek, uh, Greek language. Nothing in ancient Greek as, as used that phrase before the eyes of your heart. So it, it is kind of, uh, it, it, it is an odd phrase um, in ancient Greek. But the idea is that God would open up the very core of your being, the very core of who you are, the very center of your, your affections, your desires, and your mind, that it would be opened up to understand more of who God is. Now, you might wonder, uh, what kind of enlightenment is, is Paul talking about? This is not an enlightenment where God has opened our eyes to understand the gospel for the first time, right? That's a type of enlightenment, right, that the Holy Spirit gives us. When we first hear the gospel, the veil has been lifted and we can understand and see the gospel clearly. We can understand our sinfulness and see the beauty of Jesus and respond to him in faith. That's not the type of enlightenment Paul is, is praying for here. He's praying that at the center of our life, at the center of who we are, that we would have a deeper understanding of who God is, of who we are in Christ, and of the world around us. When the Bible talks about our hearts, what's being referenced is the whole person, right? The whole person is, when the, when the Bible talks about the heart, it speaks about the whole person. That's why in Jeremiah it says, right, the heart is deceitful above all else, Speaking of the whole person, right? The center of our desires, the center of our affections, the center of the things that we love, what we think about in the middle of the night. The ruling center of the whole person. That's what the Bible references when it thinks about the heart. So it's a combination of our emotions and our intellect. That's what, what the Bible means when it says our heart, right? And so when Paul says that the eyes of your heart would be opened, or that your eyes of your heart would be enlightened, Paul is praying that at the very core of our being, at the very center of who we are, that that would open up to understand God better. That's what Paul prays for. He prays for at the very center of who you are, at the very center of your loves, the very center of your desires and of your mind, that that would be opened up to understand God better. That's what Paul prays for, that at the very core of who we are, you would understand God better. That's what it means that the eyes of your, of your heart might be enlightened. At the very core, you would understand who God is. Therefore, this isn't just a knowledge of God that is in our mind, right? This isn't just reading theology books or devotionals or whatever. Those are, those are very helpful things, right? But this is a knowledge that sinks deep and changes us. It's a knowledge that changes us from the very center. That's the prayer, that's the prayer that Paul asks for. Literally, I believe that this is a prayer for the transformation of our minds, right? Romans 12, right? That, that therefore be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's the, the, the knowledge that Paul prays for, that your mind would be changed, that the things that you love would be changed through an encounter with God, that your desires would be changed. That's the, that's the knowledge and revelation that Paul asks for. 
that at the very core of your being that you would understand and know who God is and be changed as a result. So it's not just head knowledge, it's knowledge that affects our hearts, it's knowledge that affects the rest of our life. Knowing God and who we are in Christ will grow our faith and our love for our love for God and our love for each other. This is exactly what Paul commends the Ephesian church for at the beginning, right? He's heard about their faith and love. He knows that that is a result of knowing God, right? By knowing God, right, it increases our faith in him and it grows our love. See, Satan's goal for the Christian's life is that you would not know who God is, right? That you would be left in the dark or left uh, uncertain about who you are in Christ, uncertain about the work of the Holy Spirit, uncertain of the scriptures. There's no more dangerous place for, for the Christian than, than there in that spot, right? Therefore, we can know who God is. We have to know him and cling to him more deeply. I was reminded this morning at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, right? Jesus says about the person who has two foundations. Let's read that really quick. The end of Matthew chapter 7. the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He's given this great sermon. And he says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, Matthew 7, 24, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who builds his house upon the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and burst against that, against that house. And yet it did not fall for it had been founded upon the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the wind blew and burst against that house and it fell and great was its fall. Build your foundation for your life on knowing God. Build your foundation on his words. Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. Build your house upon the rock. God has revealed himself to us. We can know him. We can know him. He's invited us to know him so that we can build the foundation of our life on Jesus. That is the focus of Paul's prayer, but he's got three very specific goals that he prays for. Let's check that out in verse 18. It says, I pray that, your eyes, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you might know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance and the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. So three goals that Paul prays for. One, he wants them to know the hope of his calling. Paul is praying for the church in Ephesus to understand our, the hope for our present life and the hope for our future. Hope for our present life means that God has called us into relationship with him. Right? You have a relationship with the God of the universe. That's amazing. That's amazing. You have been called into relationship with your creator. You've been filled with his love. You've been filled with his spirit. This is reason for hope. Another reason for hope is that you have hope for our present life that they can be different than they were, that your life can be different than it was before. That's a reason for hope, that your life can be different than it was before because of your relationship with God, because of the hope that he's called you to, that your life doesn't have to be the same. Thirdly, for our future life, 
looking forward to full union with Jesus, to being with him and seeing him as he is. That's what your heart longs for. Your heart longs to be connected with Jesus, our creator, to know him better. That's what our hope is in the future. Again, the English commentator, we're going to quote John Stott. He says, he, God, has called us to Christ and to holiness, to freedom and peace, to suffering and glory. More simply, it was a call to an altogether new life in which we know, love, obey, and serve Christ. We enjoy fellowship with him and with each other and look beyond our present suffering to the glory which will one day be revealed. This is the hope to which he has called you. And Paul prays that our eyes may be open to see it. Paul prays that your eyes would be open to see it, to see the hope that he's called you to. We have to move quickly. The next goal that Paul prays for is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Now, is Paul referencing our inheritance, the church's inheritance, or is he speaking about God's inheritance? If you're familiar with the New Testament, you know, or if you've been here the past couple weeks preaching through Ephesians, you know that Paul's talked about the church's inheritance. Look at Ephesians 1.11. It says, Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Paul says in verse 14 that the Holy Spirit is a seal of our inheritance. There are many times in the New Testament that uh, refer to our inheritance. 1 Peter 1 says that our inheritance is imperishable, reserved in heaven for you. The church has an inheritance. The Holy Spirit is a seal of that inheritance. We've already received part of it, right? The Holy Spirit is the seal of that inheritance, but we will receive the fullness of that inheritance. But that isn't the inheritance Paul talks about. Paul's talking about God's inheritance. Look at it again. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? This verse is talking about God's inheritance. And his inheritance in in who? God's inheritance in the saints. The church, you and I, you and I are God's inheritance. Think about that. We all know what an inheritance is, of course. But did you know that you are part of God's inheritance? You are his inheritance. This is a, a truth that goes back to the, to the Old Testament. When God brought the people of Israel out of Egypt, he says, I have set you apart to be a people of my own possession. I've set you apart to be my inheritance, God says. In Titus chapter 2, 14, he says, Christ Jesus who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. You are a people of God's own possession. You are his inheritance. You are his possession. You are a people for his own possession. What does it mean to be God's inheritance? It means that God cherishes you and he values you. He cherishes you and he values you. He wants to spend eternity with you. God can't wait to have you be his inheritance. If you're not a Christian and you've, you've never entered into a relationship with God through faith, do you know that you are his inheritance? You can be. You can be part of God's inheritance. 
God wants you to be his inheritance through faith. He wants you to believe and be a part of his inheritance. This is a great truth to think about. This is something to think about and chew on, right? Psalm 1-2, to think about and chew on day and night that I am part of God's inheritance, that God cherishes me and he loves me. He wants to spend eternity with me. The third thing that Paul prays for, the hope of his calling, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints in verse 19, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? What is Paul talking about? What is this power that he is referencing? What power is Paul referring to and how is that significant for us today? So that's the, the third thing we're going to think about today, where this whole, this third goal is big enough that we need to spend a whole part of a sermon just talking about this third goal, what, the power that Paul prays for. What is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? Paul is describing the kind of power that is available for the church. I want you to think, keep that seed in your mind as, as we go through this. Paul is describing the kind of power that is available for the church. Now, the way Paul describes that, he doesn't describe it for the church, right? He's describing, he's going to describe the power that God displayed in Jesus, right? He's going to describe the things that he's done with, he's he's done in Jesus through his resurrection and ascension and seating him far above all rule, power, and authority. But Paul is praying this for the church. This is power for the church. Think about that. Keep that in your mind. So, Paul says, this is in accordance, these things are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, verse 20, which he brought about in Christ when he, number one, raised him from the dead. So this is kind of, these are evidences of God's power. Paul's going to, in this, it's kind of a tangent. He's going to, through this tangent, explain evidences of God's power. Number one, he's raised Jesus from the dead. Number two, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He's raised Jesus from the dead. He's defeated death. He seated him, Jesus, at the right hand in the heavenly places. He has put everything, everything under his feet everything under Jesus' feet. Verse 22, this is the third thing. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, we're not going to get into God being the fullness of the church or even speaking um, too much about that. Just we're gonna, It's going to be elsewhere in Ephesians that Mike and uh, James are going to talk about. But those are the evidences of God's power that he references. Paul says that we, that we would know the, great, the, the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. And he shows that through evidences of God's power in Jesus. So to summarize, God's power is exerted in Jesus to, number one, defeat death. Right? God's power is so great that he has defeated death. We believe that Jesus rose from the grave that he lives and reigns in heaven, right? God's power is so great that he has defeated death. Number two, Jesus is enthroned over evil. He's enthroned over evil. Jesus is greater than all rule, power, dominion, and every name that is named. This is Paul's way to, in, in summary, to speak about 
every spiritual force or power that exists in the universe. All rule, power, and authority, every name that is named. Now, this specifically relates to real concerns in Ephesus. Ephesus was a hotbed for, for pagan belief, right? The, uh, I believe it's been mentioned earlier, right? The uh, ancient temple of Artemis was in ancient Ephesus, and people in that city were very concerned about astrology and wondering about their fates, their, wondering about their fate and what the stars said about their fate and what they were supposed to do. Paul says that Jesus has been raised above every spiritual power, every rule, all rule, power, and authority, every name that has been named, anything that anybody in history has named as a source of power, right? Whether it's an ancient God or, or this belief or, or whatever, Paul's saying that Jesus has been raised far above them. Jesus has defeated death. He's been enthroned over evil. And he's third, filled the church. He's far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that has been named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. This is language of victory, right? This is language, like Psalm 110, that was quoted in Acts 2. Right earlier, that, that God would raise Jesus up and sit him at his right hand and put everything in subjection under his feet. This is evidence of God's power, right? To do things that we cannot do, right? We are still subject to, to death and to evil. Those things still reign on the earth, but God has exceeded them through his great power. He's exceeded them through his great power to defeat death, to uh, control over every spiritual being to enthrone over all evil and to have Jesus be the fulfillment, to be the, the fullness of the church, to be the fullness of the church so that the head of the universe and the head of the church is the same in Jesus. So how does this relate to us today? Remember I told you at the beginning to keep that kernel in your mind that Paul is praying for power for the church, but he's using evidence of God's power in raising up Jesus and enthroning him over power. Think about that. That's a, those are hard things to relate together, isn't it? Those are hard things to put together. How can that be for us today? How can Paul be praying for those things? Yes, ultimately, there is power that I will be raised from the dead. I'm not going to be seated at God's right hand. I'm not going to be put over all rule and power and authority. Neither are, are any of you. We, we hope, hope that we will be raised again. God has promised us that. So how can this power be for the church? How can this power be for us who believe? And that's the key. This is the power is available for us who believe. By faith, this power is accessible for the church. This is amazing to think about. This is another thing to chew on, to think about, that this power is accessible for us. So number one, just to summarize it as we're wrapping up, this power is for the church. God has made this power available for the church. This is not power for us to underwrite our dreams, right? There are uh, traditions in evangelicalism. There are tr traditions in the Protestant tradition that says God has given you power, to do great things, right? To fulfill your dreams, to become millionaires, to live in a mansion, to do all those things. This is not the power that Paul prays for. That power does not exist. 
This is power that God would make us more like himself. That Paul, uh, the, the, this is power that is available for the church to fulfill its mission. This is not power for us to underwrite our dreams. We have all the power, this is for the church, we have all the power we need to fulfill the church's mission. Paul says that I, I want you to know this greatness, the greatness of his power towards us who believe. This is power for the church to fulfill its mission. The mission to care for orphans and widows, to proclaim the gospel, to clothe the naked, to feed the hungry, to baptize in his name, to disciple people, to help people grow out of passive sin in their life. This is the power that God has given to us. The very power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead, to seat him at the right hand of God, to put everything in the universe in subjection under his feet, Paul says that power has been given to the church. Holy cow. Holy cow. That should blow your mind. That that power is available for you and I today who believe. Do you believe that? Do you believe that there is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? Do you believe that you can fulfill that mission in the church? Do you believe that you can be used by God to, through your gifting to benefit the church? You can. You can do that. God has provided us the power. Do you believe that you can defeat the power of sin in your life? Man, so much in my life, I have not believed that truth, that I couldn't defeat the sin in my life. I have to cling to this truth. I have to cling to this truth because if I don't, I will fail. Cling to this truth that through Jesus, you can defeat the power of sin in your life, that your life can be different than it was before. God has given the power to fulfill the mission of the church to be transformed. This is his commitment to us. God is committed to our sanctification and to the mission of the church, right? That's what this power means. It means that God is committed to fulfilling those things, right? He's provided the means to which we can accomplish them. So again, fill the mission of the church, care for orphans and widows, preach the gospel, disciple people, love your neighbor as yourself. God has given us the power to do that because he's already done it and he's already shown that power in Jesus by raising, from, raising him from the dead, seating him at the right hand and putting everything, everything in subjection under his feet. Everything. This is what Paul prays for. This is what he prays for. You cannot fail to fulfill the purpose of the church or to be transformed into the image of Jesus. You cannot fail. God has provided the power for you. He's provided the power for you to be different and to, to uh, fulfill the purpose of the church. Let's conclude with just three concluding thoughts. Number one, how do you pray for the church? How do you pray for the church? Now, often when we are ask each other to pray or we, we ask, hey, how are you doing? How can we pray for you? Right? What we're hoping to hear is about somebody's circumstances, right? Those are good things to pray for. Those, those aren't wrong things. Obviously, we need to have other people to cast our burdens on to help lift those things up to the Lord. But are you praying for the church to know God better? Are you praying for people in the church to know God better? 
to understand God in a new and fresh way. Because that's what Paul prays for. He doesn't pray for someone's circumstances that this man would do well in his heart surgery, that this person would do better in their job, that Michael would find a girlfriend or something, you know? Like, those are important things to pray for, but Paul prays that you would know God more in your circumstances. And whatever circumstances you have in your life, Paul says, I want you to know God better through them. That's what he prays for. Are you praying that the church, that those next to you, those people that you know in the church, that they would know him, that, you, that they would know God better, that they would know God better through them, through their circumstances. Paul prays for the churches that he writes to, right? They're in most of, of, of his letters or sections that are, are dedicated to prayer. We're going to read another one in Ephesians chapter 3. He doesn't talk about a person's circumstances. He prays that they would know God better. How do you pray for the church? Number two, how are you working to know God better? How are you working to know God better? And I use that word work intentionally because it does take work. It does take effort. It takes effort to sit down, to close, turn off the television, turn off the radio, put your phone away. My God, that's the hardest thing in our world today to put your phone down, to say, God, I want to know you better. I want to read your word and understand you better. Help me to know it. So it takes work. It takes work. It takes effort. It takes intention. How are you working to know him better? Learning more about God takes work on our part. It takes work. But we can pray and ask God to illuminate our hearts. Are you praying to ask the Holy Spirit to teach us more about himself? To teach us more about himself. God is there to help us understand who God is. That's what the Holy Spirit, one of his jobs, is to teach us more about who God is. Lastly, God's power is available for the church to fulfill its mission and to make us more like Jesus. How do you need God's power today? How do you need God's power today? Because it's available for us who believe. Would you pray with me? Jesus, you have given us great, great things. Father, we, we pray that your power would be evident in our life, Lord, in the church, that your power would be evident. Lord, you've invited us to know you. You've invited us into relationship with you, Lord. I pray that we would be able to turn out the things that distract us, to, to tune out everything that would compete in our hearts, Lord, so that we can pursue knowing you. Lord, you are the fountain of life. You are the source of life. There is no life apart from you. God, I pray that we would lift others up in prayer, Lord, that they would pursue you with fresh vigor this week. In Jesus' name, amen.